In meditating on 1 John chapter 4, the first of the letters that we have in the Bible that the Apostle John wrote, I was thinking about just the phrase, war of ideas, because John, John's uh, letter rotates through three big concepts that help his people defend their hearts against false ideas. The false ideas, when we look back as Bible students and scholars, are uh, were, were propagated by religious, philosopher-type people that now historians call the Gnostics. They talked about having a mystical union with God that was better than the message of the Lord Jesus Christ that you heard the book of Acts say Barnabas went and taught, taught him about Jesus. The Gnostics talked about the, the prayer life, and they talked about getting close to God and, and having God in you, not like you and I say it, but you're, you're actually deity, become deity. And they had all kinds of weird and ascetic ways that were drawing Christians away from the simple gospel to a spirituality that was attractive but deadly for their true faith. So John, last living apostle, late in the first century, wrote, his letter. He, he wrote his gospel for the same reason, and he wrote his three letters for that reason. So I was thinking about this phrase, war of ideas. So just put it in Google Images, and this is one of the digital signs that came up, and I thought that that might work for you and me to get started studying chapter four. In a war of ideas, it is people who get killed. It, uh, it was down in the corner, it says it was written by a Polish poet. It doesn't say who said it. It's really probably more a political sign than a church sign because it's talking about how war kills people and, and it's ideas that drive wars and that what people think and believe is very important. And we would, as people that are part of the human family, we would agree. Think of the ideas of the Nazis that killed millions and millions of Jews and other people. Think of the idea of abortion that in America estimated has already killed 64 million plus babies. Think of the ideas that were behind the Twin Towers going down and over 3,000 people died. Many more were affected. Yeah, the war of ideas. It does, it does kill people. But you and I are not here to talk politics, are we? We're not here just to be anti-war. We're here because we know we're part of the church militant. We, we use the term militant church for, for us on earth because we know we're in a war. John wrote in this letter that I'm not going to read this passage. So he said that, that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And you go paging through your phone or you watch uh, the news or you hear a show or a, a special diatribe online. And you can sometimes, as a Christian, you'll say, I know where those ideas come from. They come from the devil. They're very different than what I'm used to hearing from my Lord and my word, the word of God, right? So to, to go into an ancient letter like 1 John and see him as an apostle inspired by God, combating the lies that were threatening his people, you and I know that there's insight for us who are battling in the war of ideas because the war of ideas kills people's souls. 
You remember if you were here last week, Pastor Herring getting all choked up? He's getting choked up because he was talking about how three-fifths of every confirmation class falls away in the next 10 years. He was talking about his own and he was telling the confirmants not to fall away. It's, it's the war of ideas that killed those people's faith that fall away. It always is. So every apostle and every pastor and every mom on Mother's Day and every father that cares deeply for their believing children is on edge to war. Get to war to fight for the hearts of their children to be saved so their soul is saved so they live forever because the devil is a murderer. Jesus said that in John 8. He said the devil is a murderer from the beginning and he said, and, then, and in the same sentence Jesus said and he uses lies to kill people. And you know he wasn't he, they, were, they were picking up stones to kill Jesus so he was, he was talking about physical death but he was also telling them that they were part and parcel to the devil killing souls. Because the devil has those two goals. He wants to kill people and he wants to kill their souls forever in hell. That's why he drives people mad to suicide or if he can get other people to kill them, he'll find a way. But he also wants to kill their souls forever. He hates God and he hates his people. Well, you think, Pastor, that's a great start for Mother's Day. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just sharing with you what John was going through and getting you ready to listen to John in the spirit of the Holy Spirit who inspired this for you and me so that you can have the peace and the power of the gospel restored again today. So in this section of John, uh, 1 John 4, we've got 11 verses. We see three marks of a true believer. Very rarely will you hear Lutheran pastors. We're actually taught not to use the term true believer. Lest we make you doubt whether you're really a believer because you have some kind of doubts. <laughs> we don't want you to be worried that just because you struggle, you're not a true believer. But here it fits because that's what John is doing. John is saying there's a lie and there's lots of lies out there and there's the truth. And there are marks of a true believer in a true church. And the reason he's doing that as a shepherd is to protect them from the wolves. So sometimes it's very appropriate to talk about what does it truly mean to be a believer. It certainly doesn't, we know this, but we need to say it. It certainly doesn't mean that you're a true believer because you sit your body and your backside in a pew often. That doesn't make you a believer. What makes you a believer is to believe the truth, the truth of the gospel. So real quickly, again, we'll say what the gospel is because John gets to it in verse 11 and I want to get to it here before we get there. You're going to face your judge someday, the one who made you to love perfectly all people and you haven't. And you know justice is a good thing and not a bad thing. and It's not a mean thing. It's a good thing for you and for all people, but you know you're accountable to God. And he never wanted and still doesn't want to send anybody to hell, so he sent Jesus to hell for you. Jesus took it all for you on the cross, and when he rose again from the dead, he declared you innocent of all your sins, although you really aren't. He declared you innocent. And so you're, when you face God, it won't be to be judged. It'll be to be welcomed into heaven because Christ did that for you. 
He's your Savior. But it's not just a story. It's not just an idea in the war of ideas. It's His history. It really happened. And that's what John says in a minute. I want to read it. He says it really happened. So the first true mark of a true believer is that you really do trust in your heart. You trust in Christ for your salvation and not in yourself or anything else. You trust Jesus as your Savior, the real Jesus that really came, really died, and really rose again. And John says that. So we're going to read it in that first paragraph. If we can go to Go to 1 John 4, verse 1. Dear friends, <clears throat> do not believe every spirit. He's talking about the spirit of men. He's not talking about ghosts flying around talking. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Why would he say it that way? Rarely do you and I get in a discussion with someone about whether or not Jesus Christ really came in the flesh. But they did because one of the false ideas that was floating around was he was really just a spirit being. He really didn't have a body. That's what the Gnostics would say, some of them. He says, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus, meaning in this way, a human, he was a human being that came in the flesh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Now, you have to have a Christ in order to have an Antichrist. The Antichrist that he's talking about, notice it's not capitalized. And in the Greek, there are no capital letters used in the New Testament Greek. So it's always a choice of the, of the translators. And it's properly translated here without a, a capital letter. It's not talking about the, the Antichrist. That's 1 Thessalonians 2. But it's talking about the spirit of Antichrist because there is a Christ. And the devil hates it that there's a Christ because the gospel saves people and he wants all people to go down. So he, he, he puts up counterfeits in the hearts and minds of people. And John is the last living guy that was with Jesus. And he's watching all these people say things about their, his Jesus that aren't true about Jesus. And he calls it the Antichrist. Now, when you hear the word anti, you think against, right? Actually, it, it, in their thought process, in their words, it was instead of, not against, uh, it wasn't, you know, instead of though, is still against. For instance, I remember one time, many years ago, confronting a guy that was, was, had stolen the wife of a, one of our members. And I said, why are you interfering with their marriage? And he goes, I don't have anything against the guy. Right. So you're the nice guy that stole his wife. Do you understand what I'm saying? Anti means to replace somebody. So the, bad, the teachers were replacing the real Jesus with a fake Jesus. They were antichrist. And John the Apostle, who was with Jesus, sees that it's taking souls away from the good news of complete forgiveness in Christ. And it was reestablishing for people a mystical work righteousness, a pursuit of spirituality that derailed them from trusting in grace. 
And he said, if somebody comes and they say Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, and they, and they don't teach, this is implied now in the paragraph, and they don't teach you that, <clears throat> excuse me, God became a man and came and saved you, born of a virgin, born under law, that's what Paul said, right? Okay, if God, they don't teach you that God came and saved you in the flesh, a real story, stay away from them. They're the Antichrist. So the mark of true belief is a belief in a real Jesus, the one of the New Testament. I'm a, I'm a shepherd. And every now and then, we have to be pretty specific, lest the sheep don't get it. Mormons don't have the real Jesus. They say he's like you and we were all spirit beings and he, he isn't God at all. They don't have the real Jesus. A whole different origin. Jehovah's Witnesses say he's Michael the archangel. They don't have the real Jesus. And ironically, if you listen closely to the teachings of both of those groups, which are much bigger than our church body on the planet, you'll find out you're tr there, that there's a large trust in their religion and their activity than there is in the Christ. Because when you lose the person of Christ, then you lose the complete work of Christ. And there's a frenetic, fa fanatical kind of commitment because you've got to prove to yourself that you're a real believer in whatever the laws you follow. I'm just being a shepherd. But I'll also tell you that in the pale of the Catholic Church, in the pale of the Lutheran Church, those called Lutheran, in the pale of the Presbyterian Church and the Methodist Church, dare I try to pick five more names, but I'm speaking of these, I'm thinking of definite readings I've done and talked to people. In the pale of our churches, there's people who call themselves theologians and pastors who don't believe that the Jesus of the New Testament is a real person in history. And they think they can still be church leaders because they're taught a method of studying the Bible called historical critical method by themselves. They criticize the history. And they say, you look for the message of love that's there, but you don't have to believe in the facts of the story. There's just too many holes to believe the story. Does that not sound like the same devil? Yeah. So, if anybody ever stands in front of you in your church, this church, and says, you don't really have to believe in the historical Jesus, get up and walk out because you're not in the right place. That's where, that's where someone is going to take you away. So mark of true church, true believers, is that we, we trust in Christ. Now, it's not just lip service. It's like, I just got my head straight about Jesus, and I got all the facts about him. That's not faith. That's knowledge. Trust is getting in the chair that he's got tied to his back when he walks the tightrope between two buildings. You know the story. A guy says, you believe I can walk across this tightrope with a chair tied to my back? Oh, yeah, everybody on the, you know, they're standing on the building. Yeah, yeah, you can do it. He runs across the tightrope with a chair tied. Do you believe I can have my assistant sit in the chair and bring her back across? Yeah, 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 we believe you can do that. And he brings her across. They gasp because he almost falls. He gets to the other side with them. And he says, now, who's going to get in the chair? That's faith. You get in the chair. Jesus, you're my Savior. Um, 
there's another mark. And I want to see if you can kind of see what I see there. It's in that next, those next few verses. It's verse 4 and following. You, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome them in the world, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. He's talking about the devil versus God. They of the world are from the world, and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Who is us? I'm not going to take the us and say that's Don Patterson. That's not what John meant. The us is the apostles. Remember, last living guy from the 12, 13. He says, look, when Jesus picked us and sent us out, remember Jesus saying in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He chose them to have fruit that would last. I read it. The fruit that would last is the inspired truth that they taught and wrote. John says, you know, Peter said it about Paul's writings. Paul said it about Peter's writings. Now John's saying it about John's writings. He's saying, if, if, so, if these guys tell you that I may have said something in the name of Christ, but that it's not true, now you know they're a liar. Because we are the apostles. We are sent by God. So it, it, isn't, it isn't pride to be sure and confident that God has appointed you to speak the truth. That's not pride. Don't confuse the two. John is saying, if, if people don't believe the word of God as the word of God, then that's, that's a mark that they're a false teacher. It's been a long time ago, probably 25 years ago, there's a bumper sticker that people were putting on their cars that were Christians. It said, it said God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Somebody got wiser, though, and they, about a year or two after that bumper sticker, they, another one came out and said, God said it, that settles it. <laughs> that is the attitude of a believer. A believer approaches the Bible this way. If that's what it's saying, properly dis, uh, described by the teacher in its context, not taken out of context, if that's what it's saying, then that is the unadulterated truth, even if I don't personally accept it at the moment, even if I'm struggling to understand or believe it myself. If that's what it says in its context, that settles it. That's God's Word. And, and you, can, you can sense it in yourself, dear children of God, can't you? And you can sense it in other people, too, if they have a trust in the text. Now, you remember the historical critical people I told you about a few minutes ago? They call people that say what I just said uh, bibliolatrists, we are idolizing the, the book. They're name-calling, right? But John just said it. If, if there's a mark in this paragraph of a believer, I said, I want to see if you see it. It's that they listen to the apostles as they teach the Old Testament and their own words accurately for our salvation. It's a mark of faith to believe the word. And the word gets your attention. Um, yeah, I was about to share an illustration, but I won't save you that time. <laughs> what, what does the word say about human genders or sexuality? 
What does it say about loving your neighbor and forgiving? What does it say about race or what does it not say about race? I'm not going into all those things. I'm just saying that's when you journey through the war of ideas, you look to see what the Word of God is saying, not what the next person is saying on the screen that you hold in your hand or you have on your wall. What does the Word say? And you listen to it. When you listen to it, it will change your life. You know that. That's why you're here. Did you notice also that the first paragraph he says, dear friends, the next paragraph I'm about to read with you, he says, dear friends, but on this paragraph, how does it start? Dear children. Children listen to adults with greater trust and less filters. And what John is urging is that we would listen to the Bible and quit trying to filter its message through our own reasoning like children listen to their parents when they trust them or their teacher. Dear children, listen to the Word. When we listen, it changes us, and we've all seen it. That's why we're here. That's, that's the subjective reason we believe. We've seen it change our life and the life of others. When we say it changes, what do we mean? Well, it changes you from feeling lost <clears throat> to believing you're found. It changes you from being self-righteous to believing you're righteous in grace. It changes you from doubting that you've got a, an eternal life to believing you're going to live forever. Excuse me, i got to cough again. <clears throat> it, uh, it changes you in faith, hope, and the big word, what? Love. It makes you a loving person where you really had your reasons and your excuses not to be so loving, especially to the people who drive in front of you or... <laughs> your neighbor who doesn't treat you right or somebody who was rude to you in the family. And suddenly you're confronted. God loved me so much that he forgave me for all my porcupine needles. I must forgive others. I must lay down my life for others. I'm, I must. I would deny the love of God if I didn't love even the stinkers. And so we're confronted because it's no fun to love somebody that's a stinker because they stink. But God says, love them. And we know it. And we hear it. And it's in the apostles' words. And so we embrace it. And then we struggle to do it. And that's a mark. That's a mark of a true believer. Unconditional love, sacrificial giving, and um, um, indiscriminate forgiveness. It doesn't discriminate based on how nice the person is, what a promise they make to apologize, or anything like that. Excuse me. I'm going to read it to you. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. Remember, coming in the flesh, got to believe that Jesus really came. He sent his one only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you remember a few minutes ago when I said a Lutheran pastor usually won't tell you to talk about whether you're a true believer or not? 
The other thing that we'll watch for is the oughts and the shoulds. Used to, when I was teaching confirmation, we'd have the children do sermon summaries. And I would be very careful as the pastor not to just have a whole bunch of oughts and shoulds in the sermon because it just bring people back under the law, right? And in the sermon summaries that I'd get back, there's all these oughts and shoulds. <clears throat> so like today, if talking about love, <clears throat> there'd be a lot of you should love, you should love, you should love. So, <clears throat> excuse me, and looking closely to this last verse of the section, it really is the word shoulda, ought. In the original. This is where the apostle says, listen to me. If God gave his only son indiscriminately for the whole world, for the murderer and the victim and everything in between, who are you to withhold love from someone? If he so loved you and us, then you love Just through maybe coincidence and noticing a lifetime of reading some of these coincidences, I've studied the life of Eric Little and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a few other prisoners of war. Some of them I can't remember their name. But one of the defining marks of each of their life stories and how they became such notorious Christians wasn't the persecution, because there were many Christians that were persecuted, but it was the leadership in their heart that made them love even their perpetrators that were persecuting them, the guards that were abusing them. And they modeled it for everybody else who was getting mad and hurt and upset. And they modeled a love that was indiscriminate. Why am I telling you that? Well, it's in the passage, but I'm telling you that to call you up to a higher way of thinking and living. God's way. It's a mark of a true believer. It's to love your enemies and your friends as if they were one and the same. And to be a friend to all people, whether they would count themselves your enemy or not. So easy to preach. So hard for me to practice. And for you too, but God wants us to hear it. And all God's people will say, amen to that, right? Yes, that's true. Deep breath, pause. <clears throat> Clear throat. <laughs> Mother's Day. Think of the thousands of ideas out there that are trying to get your babies away from the truth that you, while you had them close to home, trying to drag them away from God. Mothers worry about that, don't they? Grandmas worry about it. Pastors hear about it from mothers and grandmas because mothers and grandmas want to talk about the love they have for their kids and grandkids and worried that the devil and the world will draw them away. I want to encourage you. It's just a truism that I, I believe, I think many of you do. Mothers are like the most powerful people in the heart of their children. And the devil can outfox you into thinking you're not that powerful because after all, they've grown up, they've gone away, and they actually even scold you sometimes when you helicopter. <laughs> right? But mothers, you are among the most powerful people. If God has graced you to have children and grandchildren in their lives. And it, as you practice your faith of being a true believer, remember what it is. Jesus is real and he's our Savior. 
He did it all for us and unconditionally saved us. The Word of God is the Word of God, and it's truth. And you live in front of them with the Word of God being the truth. And you show it by your integrity with which you live. And that third one, now I'm starting to like draw a blank. What's my third one? Love. You show that love, the indiscriminate love for your children and for people. And they see you love even your enemies. It's real to them because their mama does it. And that's powerful. You will be their reference point all through life. You'll be their encourager, things that you live and say. Don't doubt that. Be encouraged. That's what's so wonderful about the way God made mothers. And just remember that. I'm, my mom's been gone 17 years, but her sacrifice, and my mom had many weaknesses. You've heard about them. You've seen them. But her sacrificial life, her, her faith in the word and her belief that it was that she was saved and she'd boldly go to the deathbed of friends and people she was worried about and talk about Jesus. The way the, the the love and the truth that she stood for amongst all the weaknesses. And the way she ate the chicken neck, <laughs> saying it was her favorite part. They all guide me. They're all a big part of who I am. And the same for you. So moms, hats off to you. But if you want your babies to be safe, just keep being the Christian woman that you are. And all other women, some are here without children and oh, how you long to have them, or you did, don't underestimate by being a godly woman what that beautiful feminine faith does for all of the people in your life all around you. You'll give them the best chance to survive the war of ideas. Amen.